breath into our lungs and you have woken us up and fed us and allowed us to come and to consider these truths that we've sung and that we get to sing out of the overflow of a full heart this morning. And Lord, we pray that as we have sung these words, that we have spoken them as a prayer, that we have asked you to create revival in our cities, in our nation, in our families. And God, we pray that that starts in our hearts and that we would be reminded that these words are true, that you have washed us and cleansed us and made us clean and right before you. For the foundations of the world, you have called us and made us your own. So Lord, for a moment, would you allow us to take a breath? Would you open our minds and our hearts to hear your word and to be reminded of the truths in it? Remind us of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, may that refresh us and renew us and revive us again. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Y'all grab a seat. Well, uh, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to op- uh, ask you to open up to Ephesians chapter 2. So we, uh, we're moving along at a quick pace and uh, jumping right into Ephesians 2. Uh, apparently, one of y'all's churches is going through Ephesians, right? Some of y'all? Your pastor's looking around going, yes, we are, by the way. Um, so you're going through Ephesians, and so uh, hopefully this is uh, kind of a high-level overview. But uh, I was reading in uh, online, you know, how people post different articles, and I thought this one was interesting, so I clicked on it. It was from the Chicago Tribune. It was a couple of years ago, uh, but it was about a family in Chicago, in the Chicago area, and the oldest son was a really tight-knit family in, in the Chicago area, and the, and the oldest son, he uh, gr- had grown up, and he graduated high school and was moving on to college, and he was going to college out of state, and so uh, his name was Dave. The family was the Davillas, and so Dave Davila uh, went off to college, and his family was kind of mourning the loss of Dave's. Uh, uh, going off to school and so uh, mom had this great idea and she thought it was a great idea uh, and so she took a digital picture that she had of Dave uh, standing there with his khaki shorts and his blue shirt and and she actually blew it up to life size so it was a five foot eight image of Dave and she she got it and she cut it out and she put it on cardboard and so now Dave wasn't gone anymore and so at dinner uh, Dave would be there at his chair sitting in the chair and uh, and they, they would actually start taking him to family events and outings and so uh, the, the article said uh, that, that, she, that Dave was talking to his mom on the phone he said uh, his mom said hold on I got to put you in the van and so I had to take the cardboard cut out and put it in the van to take around and, and so it kind of became this thing in this, uh, this suburb of Chicago, people would start saying, oh yeah, there's Flat Dave, and uh, his friends would call him and say, hey, Flat Dave's way better looking than the real thing, and, and so sort of joking about that, uh, that his image would go forth wherever he was, but he wasn't even there, he was absolutely in a different state and a different time, and, uh, and I'm reading this going, man, I think that there's something to this idea that, that we, uh, we would love the idea and oftentimes live out this idea that in community we sort of have this image, this perfect uh, image of ourselves, that's this, this sort of cardboard cutout, like pick the best picture of yourself that you can possibly imagine uh, and, and think about it. And you notice this is that you always judge a picture like that's a good picture or a bad picture based on how you look in it, not how other people look. You're like, that picture's awesome. Everybody else's hair is like going crazy and you're like, I look pretty good. I don't know about you. Uh, and so you take the best picture, the best image of yourself and you were to put that on a cardboard cutout and you show up in your community and you put the cardboard there but then you just go ahead and take off. Like that would be a, 
absurd way to do life, to do family. So you as a dad uh, assume that a cardboard cut out of you at the dinner table is sufficient uh, replacement for you would be absurd. For you to assume that in your small group, in your Bible study, for you to just take a picture and a cardboard cut out and put it in the chair and then go off to work and say, oh yeah, I was there, would be, would be people would start questioning your sanity. But But oftentimes what we do when we come to community, when we come to family, is that we have an image of ourselves present, but our hearts and our souls and our minds are completely somewhere else. I mean, we're we're at home, and we're at the dinner table, and our face is there, but our heads and our hearts are at work, or our heads and our hearts are fishing or golfing, or whatever else it is we wish we were doing. And then we're at work, and we we wish we could be with the kids and the family, and then we're, we're always in another place. And so we have this image, our face is present in our community groups, but our heart's not there. And so imagine this, if you've got 10 guys and you're in a, in a men's Bible study, and each one has a cardboard cutout, but they're not there, not a lot's going to get done. Not a lot of heart is going to get shared. Not a lot of life is going to get shared. Not a lot of sin is going to get confessed because we're all just putting forth the perfect image of ourselves. And if that's the way we do community, we're going to be sadly mistaken and we're probably going to leave the church we're at and we're going to go to the other church down the street because we're going to assume that it's the church's fault and not ours that we're not finding community. And what happens is we bounce around long enough to begin to get bitter and complain that maybe there's no church. Maybe this whole Christian thing doesn't even work I mean, I'm trying to find community, but our hearts aren't in it, our minds aren't in it, and we blame other people for our inability to connect. And so, guys, we uh, are in crisis mode sometimes as guys that it's hard for us to find connection, it's hard for us to find community, uh, but sometimes it's only because it's just an image of us and not the real deal. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about that because Paul begins to talk about that idea here in Ephesians. Um, and this is a pretty powerful section. And, and as we read it, we begin to see that, that, the, that when the Bible talks about this idea of church or community, it doesn't talk about an individual betterment. When, sometimes when we think about church, it's like I go to church to receive instruction, to receive, uh, to, to worship, to sing the songs. And, and if I like the songs, then that's a good worship set. And if I didn't like the songs, uh, then it's the worship leader's fault and those types of things. And we think about church in terms of individual betterment. But the, the New Testament doesn't speak of it that way. The New Testament talks about the church with communal language. It's a building with lots of stones built up on top of each other. It's a family. It's a household. It's a bride. It's, these are the words. It's a body with all sorts of different parts of the body. And that's how the, the New Testament is talking about the church. It's not in individual terms. It's in communal terms. And so we get to this place, uh, and we're about to see and, and read in Ephesians 2, 11 through the rest of the chapter. He's talking about these two very different groups of people. This racially, socially, uh, uh, ethnically, uh, socioeconomically, radically different groups of people who are brought together by Christ. But, but Paul does something, and, and honestly, I've read Ephesians tons of times, and often when we read the Bible, you know, the, the numbers that are in here, are they were not inspired. Uh, they were put in later so that we could, uh, we could learn how to read the Bible and say, oh, it's in that section. And so, so when Paul is writing, he's, he's writing one continuous thought in chapter 2. He doesn't stop at the end of verse 10 and and then there's a new thought. He says in verse 11, therefore, which is connecting this section with the previous section. So we we are great. You might, as I read through chapter 2, 1 through 10, you guys might go, oh yeah, I've heard that. I've read that. I've memorized that. I've got that on a t-shirt. That's a famous verse. But it connects to the next section 
uh, in Paul's language. So uh, oh, here's what I wanted to do. And y'all going to have to, hopefully you got a little caffeine in you because you're going to have to track with me a little bit because we're going to be going from community to gospel to community. And you're going to go, wait, how does this, how do these things connect? Hopefully through the scriptures, we'll see how these things connect because Paul connects the gospel truths to how we live in community. So let me read this to you. Chapter 2, let's start in verse 1. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So good morning, man camp. There you go. A little good news for you. You were dead and you were children of wrath. Okay, cool. Here we go. This is a feel-good message of the year. Uh, so here's what Paul's doing. And they, honestly, uh, there's times where maybe you're reading Scripture and there's a phrase or there's something and you're like, that, that seems strange. And, and, and depending upon how persistent you are, you'll either skip past it to the easier verse or it will really gnaw at you. And I've read Ephesians 2.1 for, for a long, long time. And this phrase really, really bugged me. And here's why. I would read this. It says, you are dead. I'm like, no, I'm not. I don't think I'm dead. Like I'm awake, I'm alive, I'm eating Cheerios and I feel like I'm not dead. And so there's something either wrong with me or my misinterpretation of this or I get it. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm assuming that in the Greek, dead probably means something else. And so I'll go study the Greek and I find that in the Greek, dead means dead and that didn't do me any good so I'm like okay what's going on here and this really bugged me for a long time for for probably a couple of months as I'm wrestling through and going what does this mean I'm going to commentaries and so I started kind of tracing backwards in scripture what does it mean to be dead in my sins and it brought me all the way back to the very beginning all the way back to Genesis 2 and 3 and so I rewound all the way back. That's the first time we see this idea of death entering the scene. Uh, it's not that long into the Bible that we begin to see this idea play out. It's chapter uh, 2 and 3 of Genesis. And here's what's happening. Y'all know the story, I'm, uh, I'm assuming, but let me just kind of give you a little bit of context. At this point in Genesis 2, God created Adam, and he was lonely. He names the animals, and so he creates Eve as a helpmate suitable. And there they are uh, at the end of Genesis. They're in the garden with all of the beauty of the garden and all the fruit, and they didn't uh, have to do any of that, uh, that crazy stuff that we think about. So uh, there was no curse, there was no sin, there was no shame. And here we are in verse 24 uh, of Genesis 2. It says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so we see this imagery here that Paul, I mean that, uh, that Moses actually who wrote Genesis is talking about this idea of two becoming one. And this verse, verse 25, is if you read it in your, your youth group or your junior high group, there's maybe some giggles, maybe at men's retreat too. Uh, verse 25, it says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And you read that and you're like, okay, Moses, seriously, that seems like a little bit of a silly statement to throw in there at the end of Genesis 2. Uh, why would you say they're naked and not ashamed? It makes us giggle. But there is some profound things happening here. Because I want you to think about this for a second. To say someone is naked and not ashamed makes us giggle because it's so, so outside of our context of reality. Because what we do is, is shame and nakedness are actually linked together in our minds. 
Shame and nakedness are linked together in our minds because we live in a post-fall society, but in a pre-fall society, they were naked. And you think about the beauty of this. This is husband and wife and garden and nearness to God, and they could talk with God, and they could eat the tree. I'm kind of imagining the Garden of Eden like that old uh, Tootsie Roll commercial where you could just eat anything, like, you know, like Willy Wonka, like they could just drink chocolate out of the river. Like, this is beautiful, Eden, and you're there, you're naked, your wife is there, and she's naked, and you're like, yes, this is great. This is good. This is fun. This is God-given. This is one flesh. We're naked, and this is so much fun. And some of y'all single guys are like, yeah, I could get on board with that. Like, uh, <laughs> so, sounds like a deal. And we think about this idea, there was no shame. There's no body image issues. There's no sexual identity issues. There's no pornography issues. There's no, there's no uh, adultery issues. It's absolute clarity and joy of a man and his wife with nothing in between them. And that is a beautiful thought that lasts one verse. Because chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent that was more crafty than any of the other beasts in the field that the Lord had made, he comes and you remember what happens. The serpent starts speaking to Eve and he puts into her mind, Man, I think God's lying to you. He's holding out on you. God doesn't want you to know stuff. He's holding out on you. And she begins to believe the lie that God is holding out on her. And so what does she do? She takes the fruit and she eats it. And what does she do? In verse 11, she ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. And so Eve gets the blame for this. But what's Adam doing? He's standing there watching it. And I was going to say he has his hands in his pockets, but he's naked. So I don't know what he's doing with his hands. He's like... Yeah, that's about right. A snake talking to my, my girl. Then the snake's talking to my girl about God lying. And my snake's, the snake is talking to my girl about eating an apple. And, uh, and that's going to be cool. And, he's, and why is he not doing anything? If that's me, I'm going to go create a shotgun and, and blow the snake up. Or take that snake and, you know, throw it into the floor. I'm like, why is he standing there not doing anything about it? He's standing there taking this in. And he takes a bite too. In verse 7, the eyes were both opened and they knew that they were naked. And all of a sudden, the very first thing that Adam and Eve do after they eat, what do they do? Verse, uh, end of verse 7. They sew fig leaves together, which is an awkward scene. And if, if this is the movie, uh, they don't have like yarn or sewing machines. I'm just getting this picture like, you ever have that dream like in junior high or high school that you show up to school naked and you realize you're naked and you're like, you're trying to do anything you can to cover up and like run into the, you know, custodian's closet to hide. And you're like, how am I going to get out of here? Like you have that crazy dream and y'all are like, no, I never had that dream. And so you're kind of weird. Um, and so this is what's going on. And it's this image like all of a sudden they realized they were naked and they had to cover themselves. They had to cover their shame. The very first thing they do when sin enters the scene is they run off and they hide and they find the nearest leaves to cover themselves up. And I don't know how they sewed fig leaves together, but I, I can just imagine this kind of silly, awkward scene of like, oh, hey, uh, uh, you know, this kind of weird deal. And they're trying to put leaves together to, to cover their nakedness and shame. And that is the, that's what happened when sin entered the scene. And so we're thinking, you're like, man, I thought we were talking about community. Well, we are. Because the way that God designed community was that there would be oneness and nearness. And what happened when sin came into the picture is now there's brokenness. What was one is now two. What was no shame is now filled with shame. This, this relationship is now broken. 
And so the first thing that they do is they try to cover their shame. What's the first thing that God does? Verse 8. I love this. And it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God, watch this, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So the first thing that God does after sin is what? He enters into the garden. And how does he enter into the garden? With a big old lightning bolt, yelling and screaming and demanding justice to say, I can't believe you didn't believe me. Why did you do this? And he's throwing lightning bolts at him. No, 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 no. He walks in the garden in the cool of the day and pursues them and begins to ask them questions as a good, loving father. He says, Why, how did you know you were naked? And they go through this story. And he begins to talk to them. Now, there are certainly consequences to their sin. They are separated from one another. They are separated from God. Now they have to leave the garden. But it, it breaks the heart of the Father. But there's consequences to that. And what is the action that God takes in verse 21? It says this, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. Remember, they've got leaves on God's like, this is ridiculous. So, so here's what happens. is Death has never been a part of the Garden of Eden. Like They didn't even know what this meant. No, nothing had ever died before. And so there's this little lamb, you know, kind of running through the, the, the field. And he's in the Garden of Eden too, drinking out of the chocolate stream. And he's just loving life. And he's like, oh, cool, there's God. So he runs up to God. And God takes this, this sheep, this lamb, and he breaks its neck. And death enters the scene and you think Adam and Eve are going, what is going on? And he takes the coat or the, off of that sheep and he creates clothing to put over Adam and Eve and he creates clothes for them by the death of an innocent lamb. And all of a sudden we say, wait, 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 that starts, that kind of sounds familiar to something else that's about to happen in Exodus and that sounds familiar to something else that's about to happen in the Gospels, when God takes an innocent lamb and he kills the innocent lamb to clothe the nakedness of humanity, we see the Gospel all of a sudden in Genesis chapter 3. We're like, oh, yes. See, the Gospel didn't start when, the, when, when Matthew wrote Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. The Gospel started before the creation of the earth, before the foundation of the earth. He loved you. He knew that this would happen. And here we see death enter the scene and the brokenness of them. Their relationship is broken. The bro- brokenness between them, brokenness between God, and God brings death to the scene to cover their shame. So let's fast forward back to Ephesians 5, or, sorry, Ephesians 2. You are dead in your trespasses, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, just in case you forgot it the first time, Paul says it again, you were dead, but God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, with which, he, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you see death in, in the first couple verses, but then it says, but God who is rich in mercy, he loved us and made us alive. And he does that 
by the cost of his son, and so he gives us life. There was nothing that Adam and Eve could do to cover their sin and their shame. What they could not do for themselves, God did for them. And he killed an innocent one so that they could be covered. And in the same way, you and I, what we could not do for ourselves, according to Ephesians 2, there's nothing that we could have done that would be able to cover our shame and our sin and bring back that brokenness between husband and wife, bring back that brokenness between God and humanity. The gap was too big, so God steps in and does for us what we could not do for ourselves. So this is the good news that we read about. This is the gospel that is good news. That's what the word gospel means. And so we see this. And then Paul, again, just one continuous thought in verse 11 says, Therefore, because of these truths, let's think about this in terms of community. So here we go. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promises, having no hope without God in the world. So, he's, so what he's doing is he's talking to these two different groups of people. This, in Ephesians, in the Ephesian church, there's this Jewish group of people and there's this Gentile group of people. And these are very radically different groups of people, socially, religiously, economically. They're completely different groups. They don't like each other. They don't hang out together. They don't go to barbecues together. They don't worship together. Their churches don't hang out together, those types of things. And he's saying now something is happening in community where the flesh was broken, where brokenness in Genesis 3 uh, broke humanity apart. Part of the gospel reality is bringing humanity back together. And so he's saying, look, you remember Gentiles. This is who you were. You were alienated from Christ. You were separated uh, from the commonwealth. You were strangers to the covenant. You had no hope. You were without God in the world. So that's a bad place to be. And so the, the, these were, this was the reality of who the, Jewish, uh, or the Gentile people were. And then God comes in and he brings the two into one. So... Just for some uh, sort of historical perspective on this this divide, it's not like um, you know UT and OU like they don't like each other, and, and this is one of the things I realize. I don't know if there's any UT or A and M fans here, but after being at A and M and then going to UT, uh, there we go, we got one. Apparently, UT and A and M, from a UT perspective, it was kind of like A and M's like a sibling rivalry. Like we don't like them, we want to beat them, but we kind of love them. Uh, OU is like, no, we just hate them. We don't want to be anywhere near them. And so, uh, so you can think about a rivalry wherever you are, whoever that rival is in your heart and in your mind. Think about that on steroids to the nth degree. That's what's happening here with the Jews and the Gentiles. There was a couple of laws on the books. And, and so some historians have, have told us these things. It says this, um, that it was unlawful for a Jew to render aid to a female Gentile who was pregnant uh, because that would serve to bring another Gentile into the world. So you see a pregnant Gentile and, and she's in need. It would be illegal if you were a Jewish man to offer her any help uh, because that might only aid her bringing another Gentile in the world. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, the family, instead of having a wedding ceremony, would actually have a funeral ceremony because they would cut that boy out of the family. So that's kind of a big deal, right? Uh, yeah, we're going to, instead of on your wedding day, can you imagine everybody comes in black and mourns the death of you? You're like, dang, mom and dad, it's kind of serious. Let's cut the cake and like, come on, let's go. But here's the deal. Uh, they, uh, 
you probably have heard this if you go into the temple court if you went into the temple court in that day there were certain courts there was a court of Gentiles and over the court of Gentiles that would move into a further part of the temple there was a big sign that says Gentiles you can't go into this place or you will die we'll kill you can you imagine in your church like the hospitality booth says hey if you go into the sanctuary and you're not a believer there's a guy with a sword and he'll just he'll just stab you and you're dead like awesome I love this church this is so hospitable and community and this is so great but that's what's happening they say if you go in there we will kill you so these groups did not get along they did not like each other and here comes Jesus saying now I want you to guys, I want you guys to, to play nice and they're like yeah that's not going to happen but here's what happens is that the power of the gospel the power of the good news of Jesus does this it says in verse 13 this is who you were remember you were isolated you were alone you were outside of the commonwealth but now verse 13 in Christ you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing walls of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Can you imagine what the picture to that community would have been like that the Jewish community and the Gentile community all of a sudden started, started hanging out together and going over to Peter's house and breaking bread and drinking wine and going to parties together and worshiping together. The community would look at that and go, I've never seen this before. Like We've never even imagined what this would look like. What is going on with these people? This is crazy. They used to hate each other and kill each other and now they worship together now they love each other and they're serving each other. Why? How does a community c- get created like that? And so we think about our, our cardboard community. We go to community group and, and we're not in and we're not a part or we, we're in our family and our, our face is there but our hearts are somewhere else. So we show up and worship and we're there and, and we, we check the box but our heart's not there. And we say, what's the difference between that and the Ephesians 2 community where they were, they were doing something so radically different? It's because their community was based on the fact that they were dead in their transgressions and sins, but God had made them alive in Christ. When you recognize and feel the weight of that, it changes everything. It blows up that line that we talked about, and all of a sudden now I can come in and I can be myself and I get to worship. And so it's not about the people that are not like me and the people that are like me. It's about the one God who we all get to serve together. And so God is creating for himself one body that came out of two And so we see that in these verses, here's what Paul says, Christ is our peace. He made the two one. He separated the wall of hostility. He made one man out of two. Uh, He is peace between Jews and Gentiles. He becomes access for all people. And so we read this and we say, wow, that's that's pretty powerful. What, What does our community look like? What does our community group look like? Does it say something to the people around us? What does our church look like by the way that we love each other and serve each other what, what is that saying about the good gospel that we have what is it saying about the fact that we were dead and now we're alive does our community in the way we care in the way we love in the way we're involved say anything about the weight of the gospel and the reason why I think Paul does this the reason why he puts the gospel at first and the community second 
is because of this. If we don't realize we were dead in our transgressions and sins, but God made us alive in Christ, if the weight of that never truly lands on us, then, then community is not really that big a deal. Because grace isn't really that big a deal. If we were just, if we were sort of like C students and God just kind of gave us a nudge over the top to give us a B so that we could pass, if that's the kind of deal, if that's the kind of gospel that we believe, then the gospel really isn't that good of news. It's kind of pretty good news. But if you were dead, lifeless, and breathless, no hope apart from Christ, without God, and without hope in the world, but God stepped in and breathed life into your lifeless lungs and said, I'm calling you up, I'm adopting you, I'm reconciling you, I'm purchasing you, I'm making you one of my own. And all of a sudden, people that look different and sound different, that doesn't, that pales in comparison to what God has done. He's done that to you too? Awesome. We were both dead and now we're both alive. Who cares if we don't make the same amount of money? Who cares if we don't live on the same side of town? God has done an amazing work in us. Let's celebrate this together. Let's enjoy what God has done, our, our Father who is in heaven. Let's celebrate that. And so all of a sudden we start seeing all sorts of different groups of people. But if we don't know we're dead and we don't know we were brought to life, then it's really not that big a deal. I remember when I was a kid, uh, I was in... Uh, so. I was the youngest of three boys and we were in Target shopping one day and, and I was way into G.I. Joe guys like the little uh, it, was, it was right after they were the big guys and they became the little guys and they had like all the, the kung fu grip and you could buy all the cool accessories and I, my whole economy as a young guy was uh, based on how many G.I. Joes that thing is worth so it's like a TV that's probably worth about 30 G.I. Joes uh, I, I couldn't understand money but I could understand that and so I remember I was in Target and, and my mom and I was the youngest of three and so she was just kind of crazy if you've ever shopped with kids it's a unique experience so I've got three boys I'm like all I got to do is just get the milk and get out of here and that's that turns out to be like a 45 minute uh deal because they're wandering off and and so we were doing a little that we were wandering and so we walked past the toy aisle it was near Christmas time and they put the the G.I. Joe figures right at seven-year-old eye level and so I see the new action figures so mom and my two brothers go down the aisle. I kind of diverge and go over here and I'm picking up these toys and I'm looking at them and I'm dreaming of what I could do and play with them and there's this, this cool tank that you could get. And so I'm there. And, and in my kid's mind, I think I'm there for like hours. That's probably a couple of minutes. I don't know. Uh, but there was a moment. There's a moment in which I stopped playing with the toys and realized, wait. I'm not sure where, where my brothers are or my mom is. So I go out to the aisle and kind of look this way and look that way and no mom, no brothers. So I go down to the next one, look down, no mom, no brothers. And there is this moment of panic. I don't know if you've ever been in that place as a kid where you're lost and you're like, and here's, here's the thought that I had as a rational thought as a seven-year-old. I'm like, I think I will just live in Target now. This is my new home. I mean, there's a bedding section here. They've got some orange juice. I guess I'll, I guess I'll just live here. And I was struck with fear. And I'm standing there going, I don't know what to do. I don't know my phone number. I don't know where I am. I know I'm at Target, but I sure can't get home from here. Uh, and so I was completely dependent on mom. And she was gone. And there I was going, I don't know what to do. And it set into me a sense of panic that I had to find my mom and so I think eventually they called on the loudspeaker because I was there like you know and so they figured out that I probably needed some help and uh and so uh there was the deal but I, I wonder if if I had never looked up from my toys long enough to realize I was lost 
Uh, How often do we get so sidetracked on the toys in our lives that we just don't ever look up? Like we don't ever think, man, I need some help. Maybe maybe we just are comfortable living in Target the rest of our lives on the G.I. Joe aisle. But there is something, the fact that there is a moment, there will be a moment in your life if that moment has not come yet where you will wake up and your eyes will open and you will go, I'm dead. I'm lost. These toys are insufficient. They are meaningless. And you will run out to the aisle and you will look down and you'll say, where do I go? What do I do? Who's there to help? Who's there to show me the way? And you will find yourself in a place of utter panic. And if there's not brothers around you going, man, I've been there. I know what's going on. I want to walk with you. I want to lead you. I want to show you the way. You find yourselves in despair, depression, despondency. And man, I hope that if you are there that you will look to some brothers and say, guys, I need some help. See, the the Christian church is never about one individual trying to make his life better. It is about a community of people coming alongside one another. Why? Because Christ died to make the two one. He died to create a community for, for himself called the church. So it's not about you just coming and consuming the product of a sermon or consuming the product of worship or consuming the product of student ministry or farming your kids out and just doing their thing. It is about you coming together. So your call on your life to be a member, a part of the church of God is not to set the cardboard deal up and go, yeah, my face is there, that's, that's good enough. No, it's to say, I'm there. Because if you show up and you're, it's just your face without your heart, maybe you don't need those other guys right now, but maybe they need you there. I mean, maybe their lives are falling apart and they're going, man, does anybody, is anybody going to listen to me? I feel so lost and I don't know who to talk to. Maybe, maybe they need you in that time. And guys, probably there'll be a time in your life where you're that guy. And you're going to go, man, I need somebody around me. So I don't know where you are in community, where you are with your community group, but man, I, I encourage you that this is the way scripture talks about it. That the gospel creates a new community. And, and, and just, I'll close with this, kind of three um, benefits that, that community brings that we can't have by ourselves. Number one, uh, community brings a, a context for spiritual growth. Uh, community brings a context for spiritual growth. You think about the way that Jesus made disciples. Uh, it was, he didn't sit them down in a classroom and say, okay, let's open your books. We're going to be in lesson one today and kind of walk through that. There was some teaching, but the teaching happened along the way. I mean, they went to weddings together and parties together and they talked together and they saw, saw him heal people and they're in boats and uh, he's helping them at their jobs when they're fishing and those types of things. It was a very communal experience. It was a life on life kind of deal. And that's the way that he made disciples. And so when we think about spiritual growth, we don't think about only cognitive We think about our heads and our hearts and our hands working in uh, conjunction so that we know things, we feel things, and we do things. All of that happens in the context of community. It's more, not just about knowing, which is the classroom environment. It's about feeling that and then about doing that. And so we do that in community. So the first thing is community is the context for spiritual growth. Secondly is community is the foundation for mission. You say, what what in the world? You know, there's a lot of talk about uh, missional church. There's a lot of talk about those types of things. Um, uh, our, our church, we call our small groups missional communities. Um, and we do that purposefully because we think this small group is both mission and community. 
that those things are not separated from one another. You, read, you don't read in the scriptures now, here's how you do community, and then here's how you do mission. Those two things are intricately tied together. So community and mission are tied together. We call this idea the community apologetic. And so when you think about apologetics like Ravi Zacharias or Lee Strobel or these guys who are cognitively approaching the questions of the faith and, and giving a defense for the faith, I love listening to those guys. They're so smart. Uh, I listen to Ravi Zacharias' podcast on the way to work and then I try to quote him and sound really smart and I always mess it up because I don't have a cool like Eastern accent so it doesn't sound nearly as cool. Um, and so these guys are doing this from a cognitive level but the church is doing it from a communal level. So the way that we love one another actually says something to our community. So on my street in Austin, uh, there's, there's us, Shannon and I, and our boys, and then two doors down, there's another uh, family of, of six, and then they go to our church. And then in between, there's a, um, a guy who's uh, he's been divorced, and he's living with his girlfriend and their kids, and uh, so our kids play together. And then down the street, there's a firefighter. He's a former Mormon. Uh, she grew up Baptist, but doesn't, has, they haven't been to church in years. Next to them uh, is our friends. Uh, he is the leading salesman uh, in the region for Home Depot six years in a row uh, for uh, siding. So he gets to go to like Hawaii every year for selling siding. I'm like, that's pretty legit. And I'm praying he is just this winsome sale. Like your, your prototypical salesman, you think about, that guy could sell ice to an Eskimo kind of guy. I'm like, and I pray this. I said, Jesus, we need him on our team. We need this guy. He's never ever stepped foot in a church in his life good dude uh he came to church last week to our to the campus and and that's after about four years of hanging out and praying with this guy but what happened was this is that our little family and the family down the street we just hang out in the street and we love one another and we make mistakes and our kids fight and we we show grace and forgiveness and what's happening is that these other families are starting to come out and they're playing in the street and they're seeing man this, this seems different they actually don't get along sometimes, but they still love each other. And don't they go to church together? And, and what's happened after about four years of hard ground and praying is that we're beginning to see. So the, the former Mormon and Baptist, uh, they, they've come to church about four weeks in a row. Uh, the Home Depot guy and his wife have come uh, a couple of weeks in a row. She's been about six weeks. He's come once, and that was because I was preaching live. And I'm like, bro, we're friends. You need to come. He's like, all right. You know, he's like, I don't want to do it, but I'll be there. And this is the, the apologetic of community at work. And, and I can talk to them and I can give them cognitive information, but when they actually see me loving them and loving other brothers in Christ, there's something that begins to happen that all of the arguments that I have for the faith, they just, they, they, on his heart, they bounce off, but he begins to see, this is real. I've known this guy for years and this is real. And so the context, the foundation, a community becomes the foundation for mission. Jesus said it like this. He said, they will know you are my followers by the love that you have for one another. They will show forth that. Paul, in, in, later in Ephesians, the very next chapter says this, Ephesians 3.10, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God will be made known. Through the church, the community, the Gentiles and the Jews who hated each other being brought together, through that happening, the manifold wisdom of God will be made known. This word manifold is like this idea if you take a diamond, and uh, a big diamond apparently, and you turn it like this, you see all sorts of different colors and different shades. That's the idea of this word manifold. It is so, uh, there's so many different layers and levels. It's profound. He's saying the church will show forth the profound wisdom of God by the way that they are loving one another. That's the foundation for our mission. And th finally, uh, community is the fuel for our perseverance. Community is the fuel for our perseverance. Uh, we need one another to continue to walk 
uh, to continue to run the race that God has marked out for us. Uh, it is, you know, church is not about your perfect attendance. It's not about you showing up and having all the right answers. But, but we will absolutely be at a point where you're going to need somebody to continue to run the race with you. Uh, to, to, to run the, the race that you want to quit. You want to give up. Uh, you, you don't want to go anymore. And, and, you know, I've been in pastoral ministry for about 17 years, and there are many seasons I've talked. Uh, a bunch of my roommates at A&M are off uh, planting churches, and I've had lots of phone calls with those guys, and there are many moments with those guys that are like, man, I'm done. I'm just spent. My family's spent. I'm tired. And apart from community, they, they would cash it in and say, man, I'm just going to go get a different job. This isn't worth it. But through encouraging them and saying, man, just hang in there. Give it a couple more months. I'm going to be praying for you. Here's what I'm going to pray for you. And then calling them and checking in. After a couple months, they're like, okay, I got breath again. I can keep running. Uh, I was talking to one guy uh, who has a church in Charlottesville, Virginia. We had multiple conversations about that. He wanted to throw in the towel. It was too hard. Charlottesville is really hard ground. And uh, they've, they've persevered. And they've been in it about four and a half years. And they've got a church in this tiny, not tiny town. It's a pretty big town. But uh, it, the, 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 the ground is really hard. They've got like 400 people coming to their church. I'm like, man, I'm so thankful that God let you continue to run the race that hundreds of people, like 100 different college students from uh, University of Virginia, they've got a group of about 100 college students that are coming. It's changing that campus. I'm like, God, thank you for perseverance. But that would not have happened if they weren't in community, if they didn't have somebody to call, if they didn't know somebody that was praying for them. So guys, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, every single one of your groups, each group has different numbers of guys. There is a guy in the group that you came with in your church one guy at least, if not multiple, who are like, man, this, this, this retreat's the last straw. Like, I'm almost done. And I'm here. Better show me something, God, because I don't know if I can go on. My marriage is falling apart. My life is falling apart. My work is falling apart. I can't make it. Guys, open your eyes and, and begin to ask, hey, man, what's going on? How, don't let these guys get away with being cardboard images of themselves in your community. Don't let them get away with it press in and say man I want to fight for you when you can't fight for yourself let me fight for you that's what community looks like and there'll be a day when you're that guy going man I don't know and that guy's going to turn around and go nope I'm not letting up I'm not letting go let's let's see that happen and the reason that happens is because we believe the gospel is good news that we believe it's worth it that we were dead in our transgressions and sins but God has made us alive in Christ that that is the fuel for why we fight why we keep running why we continue to press in so Let me pray for you guys, and I think we're going to head to our small groups. God, thanks that you did not let up on us when we were enemies of you, but you pursued us. Thanks for those brothers in Christ who have pursued us when we wanted to give up. Lord, and if there's guys in this room this morning that are feeling that, Lord, I pray that they would not hide and set up cardboard images of themselves and sort of hide behind that and, and pull their heart into to themselves and not let others know about what's going on. But Lord, would you be so kind to lead them to repentance so that they might receive your grace and that these guys might come alongside them and pray with them and for them and walk with them. God, you are, they, they, these guys are not too far gone. God, do not let any of these guys believe that they're too far gone, that your grace is insufficient, that their sin is too great. It's an absolute misunderstanding of the goodness of grace. So Lord, let us know and be reminded that we cannot outsin your good grace. We are not worse than you are good. So Lord, lead us, show us, 
bring us into community that's going to love us and care for us. And I pray that these brothers would hold that, uh, that sacred trust uh, to love on their brothers. They would hold that sincere and not talk about it outside or spread rumors, uh, but they would be able to deal with it and pray with it. So Lord, let that happen. Let that be true. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.